Sister Carico, apparently you're closer to God. Yeah. And she goes, yes. <laughs> there you go. That's all we need to hear right there. Oh, I want to tell you a good report. Uh, everybody's in, the, in a place where we can use good reports, right? Uh, Melissa and I went up to um, Dallas, up to Southwestern, um, the hospital that we go to for um, Melissa's nephrology and so on and so forth. And when, when the doctor walked in, he's a very, very friendly, very amenable, down-to-earth kind of guy. And this is not a common doctor. This nephrologist is a, he's a beast. Let's just put it that way. And he walked in, greeted us, looked at my wife, and let me, let, me, let me read exactly what he said so I don't mess this up. He said, no one would have thought you'd be doing this well. And look at you now. And keep in mind, he's saying all this with a smile on his face. And he asks us about the church and everything every time we go. And we got into a conversation about the church and Christianity and stuff briefly before he examined her. But he said that to her. He said, no one thought, for you, thought that you would be here like this. As a matter of fact, I remember early on in Melissa, Melissa's journey in this health challenge that she's faced. She had one particular individual in the hospital lean over and tell her point blank if you had not got here when you did this would have this wouldn't have turned out the way it is now God is really good God is really, really good. So, thank you for your applause because the Lord is faithful. Thank you so much for applauding the King. Amen. I'm going to be preaching this morning out of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I love this text. It's 17 and 18, verses 17 and 18 in 2 Corinthians. And I'm reading from the NIV as I 99% of the time usually do. Now, I want you to look at how this verse, verse 17, opens. I want you to look at this, and I want you to ponder this, because the essence of these verses are quoted and referenced in essence a lot. But this morning, I want you to look at this specifically. Look at the opening uh, six words. I want you to look at those six words. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. Now, I want you to ponder that for just a minute. The, 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 the un- overwhelming possibilities and ramifications of those six words. Now, the Lord... Who here knows who we're talking about when we say the Lord? Okay. Thank you, darling. Is the Spirit... And I love what comes afterwards right here. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Now, 
The Lord is the Spirit. You are never without the Spirit of God as a child of God. You are never without the Lord. Why do we know that? Why do we know that? If I was to poll you right now and say, why do we know that we're never without the Lord? What would you say? I want you to ponder that for just a second. I'm going to give you three seconds. He said very clearly, I will never. That's what he said. Leave you. That's what he said. That's how we know we're never without Him. And if the Lord is in fact the Spirit, then we are never... It doesn't matter how we feel because of what we've just done or not done. Did you hear me? It doesn't matter how you feel. Faith in God is not a feeling. I've just started watching. Okay, thank you, Kim. Faith in God is not a feeling. I just started watching The Chosen. Just started watching it. As a matter of fact, the other day I wasn't feeling well. I was at home. I binged the entire first season of The Chosen. And Jesus made a statement in response to someone about the, how they don't feel, they didn't feel something. And I love what Jesus said. Okay. I love what the actor playing Jesus said. He said, I don't need you to feel anything to do great things. I don't need you to feel anything. So despite how you feel, despite what has gone around about you, despite what you may have done, said, or not done, or not said, it is irrelevant the Spirit of the Lord is forever and always with you because He said, I will never leave you. And the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit is, there is freedom. What does that tell you, the child of God? You are never in Him in bondage. Ever. Diana Caton, we are free. We walk in freedom, Jocelyn. And you know what? You know how, what it is? You know the mechanism it is? That when you are walking around your life and there isn't freedom going on, you want to know what that mechanism is? That's you feeling bad about you. It's not God. The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is, everybody together, freedom. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, Paul, I see Mel Gibson yelling, Freedom! Half of you got that. We haven't even gotten through the Scripture text. Look at 18. And we all... See, that's a southerner. We all... If he was not including himself, it would have been y'all. 
But he says, and we all who with unveiled faces. Now, if you don't understand what the unveiled faces parts is, what that even means, you need to read verses 1 through 16. Okay? Because what that means about the unveiled faces is that he is addressing the Jews here. And the apostle says, they're still walking around with their faces veiled, not getting the truth. They don't understand the truth. But we do understand the truth. And with unveiled faces, contemplate. The word contemplate there? Reflect. We reflect the Lord's glory. Think. If you want to understand what that means, think in terms of Moses. Goes up on the mountain. God hides him in the cleft. He shows him his hinder parts. And just his back, the back of God, bleaches Moses to a glow-in-the-dark face and hair. So bright, so glory-stricken, the people can't even look at him. They can't even look at him. That's how much glory is on Moses. And, And we, with unveiled faces, we've been exposed to God. With unveiled faces, reflect the Lord's glory. People, if people are walking around wondering about you, thinking, what is wrong with that person? You ain't reflecting His glory. You know why you're not reflecting the Lord's glory? The likelihood is you are imprisoning yourself in what you're doing and completely doing away with the freedom But where He is, there's freedom. And yet we walk around knowing Him, but we're not reflecting His glory. Therefore, something's wrong in us that doesn't need to be there. Because it's a lie. We've imprisoned ourselves in our own guilt. Because we've reduced Him not to the redemptive Christ that we are in relationship with, but we've reduced Him to a religion that we have to learn to uh, obey. Do you see the difference? No? You don't see the difference? We're going to get into that because that's what exactly what this, this uh, sermon's about. Reflect the Lord's glory. And we, still talking about us, are being transformed into the image. His image. With ever-increasing glory. So, you received some glory when you got Him. When you were exposed to Him, there was some glory. The thing about it is, is, it didn't stay there. It's not static. As you move forward, you're receiving more and more glory as you're being transformed into His image. So, the longer you live in Christ, the freer you should be in your own head and in your own heart. And you should be reflecting the glory of God because you've been exposed to Him more and more and more and more and more and more. And, lo and behold, let's just circle on back here. The ever-increasing glory, let's just circle on back to the top where we came from. Which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's, it's almost like the apostle said, oh, I have to get that back in there again. So everybody gets it. Guilt. We run around, in, 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 tied down, chained down, walled in 
because of ourselves. Not because, don't blame the devil. You either know the truth or you don't know the truth. Yes? You are redeemed. All mankind is redeemed. You happen to be saved because you saw the fact and you accepted that redemption and you came to salvation in Christ Jesus. And now you, with unveiled faces because you've been exposed, are reflecting the glory of God. And that glory keeps getting more and more and more and more and increasing and increasing and increasing. And that all comes from the Lord, who incidentally is the Spirit. And yet, we walk around like, oh, praise God. It's been such a long week. Okay. There's a story about an eight-year-old boy. If you've heard this one, just uh, go with me. This eight-year-old boy was about as evil, wicked, mean, bad, and nasty as they come. He was so bad. He was so bad. Right now you're supposed to say, how bad was he? He was so bad that as Christmas Day was approaching, his mother told him flatly, Santa Claus is not going to leave you any presents under the tree because you're so bad. Well, that little factoid did not set well with the little boy. So he promptly ran to his bedroom, pulled out a sheet of paper from his little desk, and proceeded to write Jesus a letter asking him to persuade Santa Claus to give him presents for Christmas. His first attempt at said letter went something to this effect. Dear Jesus, I promise, I promise to be a good little boy for one year if you tell Santa Claus to give me presents for Christmas. He looked at that letter and knew good and well that he wasn't going to last for a year. So he pulled out another sheet of paper and he tried again. Dear Jesus, I promise to be a good little boy for three months. He looked at this letter a little harder this time, but still knew that there was no way on God's green earth that he was going to be a good little boy for three months. He knew it. Draft after draft after draft, the little boy wrote each successive draft of this letter promising goodness for an increasingly shorter span of time. Finally, frustrated, he pulled out one more sheet of paper, and this is what he wrote. Dear Jesus, I promise to be a good boy for one whole day if you'll tell Santa to give me presents for Christmas. Thinking that he probably could make it one day the boy ran out of his bedroom, but then paused momentarily, realizing that he couldn't make it for even one day. So, what does an evil, wicked, mean, bad, and nasty little boy do when confronted with such a massive a, a, a dilemma? Well, he ran to where the nativity scene was set on the mantle of the family room and he gently removed the figurine depicting the Virgin Mary. He turned and ran back into his room and pulled out one last sheet of paper from his desk. And he wrote this letter. Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again. 
Chip, that's bad. That is bad. Now, unlike that little boy, most of us would never resort to such obvious manipulation in an attempt to get God to do what we want. Maybe some. Deep down, though, deep down, we know that we deserve punishment. And this sense of deserved retribution tends to evoke really strong fears and insecurities. This is the stuff we were just talking about. We know that God is infinitely good and that we are hopelessly self-centered. We know that without, without the cross of Christ, banishment from the garden of God's heart is all we could possibly ever expect. Yet, and here's the, the caveat, by His grace through Christ's death on the cross, we've been brought near. Despite the preaching that happens, we still feel somewhere deep down in ourselves that we've done something to jeopardize our relationship with God and that we somehow or another are going to be cast away from Him and yet the Word of God over and over and over again tells us, No! I am wow. Over and over and over again. No! I will never leave you. I draw you near. I'm pulling you close. I will, when you don't even know it, you are in my embrace. In fact, Paul... When we're at our lowest point of self-condemnation, what we don't know, what we don't understand, is when we are so collapsed within ourselves because of what we've said or done or thought or not said or not done or not thought, and we're in that dark corner of our life, that the Master is still in that dark corner with us holding us close. He said, I will never leave you. One would think that because the Son of God willingly, intentionally died such a cruel death for us, that we would feel fairly secure in our relationship with Him. But it's often our sense of deserved punishment that leaves us riddled with insecurities. And if we do have a tender heart towards God, our dilemma is all the more poignant. It's all the more pointed as we desperately try to offset that realization of, of insecureness. That we try harder and harder and harder to be righteous. Did you hear what I said? 
because of our perceived insecurities and our perceived uh, distance, our sense that we are disappointing Him, we tend to try harder and harder and harder to do the things that we would think make us to be righteous. The irony in all of this is that the more we try to be righteous, the less power we seem to have to be so. And if you want to see the diametric opposition to that philosophy, that reality, that the more we try to be good, the more we try to be holy, the more we try to be righteous, if you want us, we, we get more and more insecure, open your Bible. Not now, we're not going there because I preach the rest of the service on it. Go to Romans 1, 16 and 17 after church. I'm preaching. Go there and read that. But don't just read it because I'm betting 99% of you know those two verses. And you're liable to read them and just read them. But what you need to do is open Romans 1, turn to verse 16, read through verse 17, and do it repetitively. Not today and tomorrow and the next day. Today and today and today, and today, until the Spirit of the Lord suddenly clicks the light bulb onto your reality, or onto your realization, that part of you that understands, and you go, oh, exactly. Linda, I can always count on you. The more we try to be righteous, the less power we seem to have to be righteous, to, to, to do so. And oddly enough, that seems contradictory to us. Surely the more we focus... Now listen. Surely the more we focus on right living and adhering to biblical commands, the greater should be our conformity to those commands, right? That sounds logical. But there's a subtle diversion whereby in shifting our focus to His commands, we actually lose sight of Him. Not a single amen in the house. And I know why. That doesn't sound right. But it is right. Look at this. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate, reflect the Lord's glory. Now look at this. Are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. That's not you doing that to yourself. That's Him doing that to you. If you were doing that yourself, that would say something to the effect of because you're being so obedient to all the commandments or some iteration thereof. That's not what that says.
that subtle division. It shifts our focus to His commands and away from Him. And He's the only one who has the power to enable us to obey Him in the first place. It has been said that love is giving someone else the power to change. Only when we have been freed from the need to perform will we truly be motivated to change. Let's be honest, we like who we are. But when we've been freed to change, then and only then are we empowered to do so. Now, we may temporarily modify our behavior when we're trying to earn someone else's favor. We may be this way and we're going to change how we act because we want that person over there to like us. Or we may temporarily modify our behavior if we're... if if um, we feel threatened by that person's displeasure. I do not want them mad at me, so I'm going to do this whether I want to or not. That's how a lot of Christians interact with God. I want to curry His favor, so I'm going to be a good little boy for three months. Or, I don't want to incur His wrath, so I'm going to threaten Him with his not seeing His mother ever again. Okay? But eventually, we're going to react neg- negatively to these pressures and either engage in wholesale rebellion or so completely conform to others' expectations that we cease to be genuine. I have seen, despite the Word of God who says, raise up a child in the way they should go, I can't tell you how many times I have seen children rebel against their upbringing. Why? Because their upbringing wasn't the thing that the gospel stipulates, despite the fact it had the the moniker of Christ stamped on it. And when they got old, all they wanted to do was escape that trap. Because someone failed them. And they bailed out on it. And because they wanted to incur favor for as long as they had to, but when they didn't have to anymore, bounce It's all a matter of the heart. We are enveloped in God's embrace because of His grace. Not because we obey certain things. It's because of grace. And it is in that embrace that God's laws become no longer a code of conduct, but a desire of the heart. When God embraces us, we're not doing the right things because it's a code of conduct and we're supposed to obey and align. That's not what it is. It's because we're in love and we want to. God is in the business of turning our have-tos into want-tos. Of creating a state of the heart in which we revel in the, the wonder that God has accepted us. And we find ourselves... We find ourselves desiring His standards. Not being pushed to religiously align ourselves, but because we're so in love with Him, because of what He's done for us, we align ourselves because we can't get there fast enough for Him. The Apostle Paul reiterated this truth when he stated, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It's not just freedom to dance and freedom to shout 
and freedom to run the aisles. You can do that anywhere you want. Freedom from the bondage not only of sin, but the lie that requires you to be good little boys and girls in the kingdom of God or God's going to be mad at you. That's a lie. If we don't get this redemption concept down pat, we'll never mature into the thing that God wants us to. God dies for all of us when, He said, when, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We've got to get that into our hearts. We just saw the, saw the light at the end of the tunnel and said, I believe that, and you were saved. The redemption was waiting on you. This freedom is not the liberty to do what we want, when we want to. That's not what this freedom is. But rather, it's the freedom to change because we want to. God's unconditional acceptance is not a sanctioning of our disobedience. He doesn't say, I'm going to love you no matter what you do, so if you're going to be bad, you just go do that, I love you. Ta-da. That's not it. His redemption, His unconditional acceptance is rather the starting point for lasting change. God knows that we can only change in the context of freedom. We have to be free in order to change. We have to be. That is why He has lavished His favor on us. So that we could be cut free from all of this insecurity, healed from rejection's residue, and released from every sense of abandonment that would keep us from truly changing. He set us free from those things. Paul actually discussed this phenomenon and gave it a name. If you look at Romans 8, 1 and 2, not now, you don't have to, he called it the law of sin and death. That's the name he stamped on this phenomenon. Simply put, the more that you try to live by the law, or in our Gentile cases, since that's what we are, I don't think we have a single Jewish individual in the uh, room. Did you say you have part Jew in you? One, he, Jocelyn is 1% Jew. Kim, you're part Jewish? Wow. Okay, so I'm going to talk to the Gentiles a minute. Okay, is that all right with y'all? Cool. The more we try to live by the law, or as Gentiles, the more we try to be good, good. The more we try to be holy, the more we ultimately won't live by that law. Ultimately, the more we won't end up being good, and we won't end up being holy. You see, under the Mosaic Covenant, the greater the effort... The greater the attempt to live by the law, the more impossible it was to do so. Why? I'm glad you asked. Because the problem for the Israelites, and because Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun, the problem that was for the Israelites is also for you and I, the Gentiles, was that the law of God became the primary focus instead of the God of the law. When you take your eyes off Him, even to 
try to obey his laws and you then start looking to the laws your eyes are no longer on him and what happens what happens this is what happens you have Peter doing his best to walk on water being trying to be holy and trying to be righteous and trying to be good under your own power is a tempest you cannot transcend you will sink. Why? Because just like Peter, who took his eyes off Jesus, we take our eyes off him and try to do a thing in and of ourselves. What was the definition of sin from a few months ago? Not needing God for anything. Now, we may not be intentionally replacing God with his commands, but if we replace God with his commands unintentionally, you still sink just as fast. Here's the point. We're going to get to the point. We're going to get to the point. Because I've got an illustration coming up that's pretty good. Well, it's not my illustration. It's right out of God's Word. So I dare say it's His illustration. But it's really good. Come on, Sam. It's funny. Let's go. It's funny. Laugh with me. Ha, ha. Wow. Okay. We're at the illustration time now, Sam. There we go. Adam and Eve. Let's look at Adam and Eve. Do you realize that before their rebellion, and there's not a great deal of Scripture given to them prior to the fall, but before the rebellion, do you realize they walked in complete and total unhindered communion with God? One little verse is given to it that they walked together in the cool of the garden. Just one little reference. But we have no idea how long those two are running around in the garden with God. We have no idea. But before they fell, they had unhindered, unabbreviated access to God in face-to-face communion with Him. Arm-in-arm communion with Him. Hand-in-hand. They were naked, man. These two were running around the planet nude as the day is long. And they thought nothing of it. There was not a single trace of thought. You say, well, God was walking around in His long flowing robes and His train filled the temple and all The Bible says God is spirit. The likelihood is He wasn't there in that manifestation at all. Newsflash, right? Why wouldn't they have looked at His robes and thought, why do we have cool robes? There probably were no robes. There was just God. And they ran around and they, 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 they were completely naked in the garden and they never once gave it a thought. Why? Listen carefully. Because they had nothing to hide. They had absolutely nothing to cover up. That's where we're supposed to be with God. Us trying to be holy. Us trying to be good. Us trying to be righteous 
is Adam and Eve trying to cover themselves. Because all of a sudden they had something to prove. They had something to hide. Something all of a sudden they needed to measure up. And you can't measure up in front of God naked. And the first question out of the mouth of deity is this. How do you know you're naked? You're not supposed to know that. And incidentally, you really weren't before, but you are now that you're covered up. That's where we have this problem of living. We have to cover things. We, I really did a bad thing, man. I mean, the other day I did X, Y, and Z in traffic, and y'all know that's me. Yeah. Wait, man, I gotta do something to make God happy. So I put another fig leaf on my shame by trying to be good. It was never God's intention that people would come to, to be like Him in all of His character and in all of His nature through the process of having to choose good over evil. That was never the point. You get it? God never wanted us to have to choose one over the other. In fact, God didn't even want people at that time to even possess the knowledge of good and evil. He didn't even want them to know about it. Why? Because by knowing the difference between good and evil, people would inevitably center their focus on the need to be good in their attempt to please God, but would inadvertently fall into self-centeredness because they would be constantly monitoring themselves as to whether they were succeeding in being good or not and not simply fellowshipping with God. Not simply communing with God. Not simply interacting and laughing and eating and having fun with God. He never wanted you to have to choose. But now, we're stuck in that choice. And we have to break the habit of trying to be something the Bible says you're not because your righteousness is as filthy rags. But He is righteousness. And so we have to turn from our dependence on doing to looking full in the face of God. And He will put the heart desire to do. Why? Because He makes you righteous when you can't be. You can't be. You might want to give that stuff up. God designed people to become holy originally in the garden with the two naked people. God designed people to become holy through single-minded fellowship with Him. Not through trying to strive to earn His approval by doing cool things. Human character would be conformed not by a routine of aligning ourselves with commands, but human character would be conformed 
to the center of human attention. That center was God. Self-centeredness can begin a sincere preoccupation with one's personal conduct. I'm sorry, I'll get done here very shortly. With whether we're acting on the right principles, constantly searching our hearts for sin and blah, blah, blah. When taken to the extreme, such self-examination can become idolatrous because we worship whether or not we're good enough. We worship the process of becoming something holy instead of worshiping the one who makes us holy. It is the idolatry of inner righteousness that breeds Pharisees. Now that may sound like me, Michael, am trying and attempting to dilute God's standards, but that's not true because we're not dealing with the necessity of abiding by those standards. That's a given. We Ultimately, what God says we have to do, we will do. We have to do. It's, it's commanded. But we don't arrive there by striving to do it. We arrive there by worshiping and focusing on Him and Him alone. It's, it's, it's a question of how those standards are met and why those standards are met. Attempting righteousness on our terms serves only only to reinforce our feelings of rejection, inadequacy, which motivates us only to try that much harder, which slowly paralyzes us. Have you ever been there? I I have lived so many years on and off trying to live up to some standard that some preacher or preachers or something I misinterpreted or misunderstood has told me how I'm supposed to live. And the bottom line was freedom only came when I understood that His righteousness is bestowed upon me, not earned by me. That I am holy because where the Spirit of the Lord is, that's, that's the Lord. The Lord is the Spirit. Where His Spirit is, is holy. And I'm there by guilt. I'm guilty by association. I am guilty by association with Him. There is nothing that I can do to become holier. There's only something that I can do to become more mature. Grace, if you want a good definition for the word grace, and you're a note taker, write this down. Grace is knowing that we have God's favor, even when we don't deserve it. That's grace. Grace is knowing we have God's favor, even when we don't deserve it. It's His unconditional acceptance of us. Romans 5. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This may be difficult for us to comprehend because it seems to border on compromise. After all, after all, if God has unconditionally accepted us, what does it matter if I obey or not? He's accepted me unconditionally. 
If God has already accepted us, then our conduct doesn't matter much, right? Remember, I've already said this, God is in the business of turning our have-tos into want-tos, of creating a state of the heart in which we revel in the wonder that God has accepted us, that we find ourselves desiring His standards. Remember what Paul said in Romans 8, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who here is in Christ Jesus? Who here is in Christ Jesus? You know what? The greatest among us. I have heard people talk about how they did this, that, or the other, or refrained from doing this, that, or the other, and they felt guilty about it. And they went to God, oh God, I'm so very sorry. But Romans tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Freedom from condemnation doesn't come from strict adherence to the commands of God. That's not how it works. Freedom from condemnation comes with strict adherence to to Him. That's called being in love. Freedom comes from thirsting after the Spirit who focuses us on Christ. And that produces an overflow of obedience. As I mentioned last week, and I love this guy. Gosh, I love this guy. Oswald Chambers said this, God cannot deliver me while my interest is merely in my own character. It is God alone who gives us the power to change, the desire to change, and the subsequent freedom to change. And I close with this, as it has been said, we don't walk in the Spirit by overcoming the flesh. We overcome the flesh by walking in the Spirit. Stand with me. Next week, there are, as of next week, there will be four Sundays, including the Easter Sunday.